Welcome to the Script and Style Show, the web show where we talk about web development with the people that make it happen. Today's episode is brought to you by TrackJS JavaScript Error Monitoring. Know when errors hit your website with the context to find and fix bugs fast with TrackJS. Start your free trial today at trackjs.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Script and Style Show, the web show where we talk about web development and the people that make it happen. I'm Todd Gardner from TrackJS JavaScript Error Monitoring and my co-host, David Walsh, from the popular blog, davidwalsh.name. How you doing, David? Good. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Uh, how's your house? We had to cancel our show kind of last minute last week. Uh, yeah. I, I'd like to apologize to you and everyone else for that. So last Thursday, roughly 4 o'clock a.m., my wife and I shoot awake, just, you know, like straight up. And I thought I heard something that sounded like possibly like one of my kids falling down the stairs. Right. So I like, well, after my wife got me from underneath the sheets and said, you go look, you go look. I tried to cower. <laughs> um, I went out and I, you know, looked down the stairs. There was nothing there. I peeped in both of my kids' room. They were both sleeping. And um, I went downstairs. I'm looking around the house. I look in the garage. Did someone get in the garage? Um, and I looked out on my deck, and I saw, like, two or three big detached branches on my deck. And I was like, okay, some branches fell on the deck, right? And I just went back upstairs to sleep. Um, when my wife came down in the morning, you know, she, like, went around the deck and looked at the side of the house. And a tree fell on our bleeping house, man. And um, I'm, I'm, I can have a sense of humor about it now, but it was just too soon. Last week, I was really upset about it because the tree hit right, hit the side of the house, but right in between both of my kids' rooms. And it like set in like this could have been really, really bad. This could have been terrible. Um, and so. When, when I look outside, there have been a couple of trees that I have been a little bit suspect about, right? And, you know, everybody keeps telling me, oh, those trees will be there long after you pass. And now I'm like, they'll, they'll be there after I pass because they will have killed me first on the way down. <laughs> um, so the are, they, that, are they dead? So the, the tree that fell down is actually in my neighbor's property, right? But it's just like a big tree. On the outside, you would have never guessed this was going to happen. It was looked healthy, bark was all there, everything was good. But on the inside, it was completely rotted. So I don't know how that happens. So it was like infected or something. Something, man. But of all the trees that I would have guessed would have fallen down, it certainly wasn't this one. Hmm. But anyways, you know, I got to deal with insurance. I have to, you know, get this removed. People look at the siding, look at the roof. It was just like really stressful and traumatic for me. I, I can laugh about it now, but like last week, I just wasn't having it. Mm. Um, and so the, the neighborhood that we live in, the subdivision is, you know, such and such forest. So we wanted to live around trees, right? We wanted to be around nature, but this is just like one of the things that happens when you live around trees, you run that risk. But in the end, we, we're just going to have to replace a couple um, panels of siding. Like, it didn't penetrate the house. Um, and we're going to have to replace a window. But thankfully, everybody's okay. 
and and that that feels good. And I'm excited to be here this week. Well, we're glad to have you back. I'm glad everybody's safe. So what are we talking about today? So, I mean, I wanted to have a guest this week, but I can't go from tree falling on my house to guest. You know, we, there needs to be a transition of ease. So I thought that I'd seen a couple of really awesome um, web articles and demos pop up in my Twitter feed, and I thought that we should talk about them. Um, and I know that you felt the same way. So we're going to talk about a handful of, of awesome uh, news articles that we've seen come out this week. Awesome. So episode nine, what's in the news as of May 2018? Why don't you start us off with your first story? Yeah. So one that I was super happy about and so excited for was Dojo 2 being released. Um, and for those who don't know, Dojo, the Dojo Toolkit was a <clears throat> massive framework back in the MooTools and jQuery days. And the problem, the biggest problem that Dojo had was that it didn't market itself well. That was never an aim of Dojo. So where my the MooTools had myself and jQuery had someone like Ray Bango and Paul Irish, Dojo didn't put a lot of effort into promoting itself. And it really should have. Because the Dojo toolkit back in the day was amazing. And I can say that because, you know, from my origin story, I was a MooTools guy. That was introduced to a Dojo guy by a jQuery guy. And when I moved to SitePen, you know, I had, I'd known a little bit of what Dojo did. But when I got there and I understood the full scope of what Dojo could do, it was amazing, right? Like Dojo had promises and deferreds before anyone else. And I mean, like by years. It had all of the, you know, basic features that AmuTools and a jQuery had. But it also... It, you, you have to understand that Dojo is divided into three parts, right? The first part was like the anim- the, the animation, the DOM stuff, um, the promises, you know, the stuff that basic frameworks have. The middle part of Dojo was this amazing UI, um, what, what do I call it? Like UI framework called Digit. And it had tons of different UI components that work seamlessly together that were all written in the same consistent UI, uh, same consistent code pattern, which a lot of other, you know, UI components had been, they had localization baked in, they had accessibility baked in thanks to IBM. It was just an amazing, amazing tool. And I always used to complain about digit, right? But when I got far enough away from it, I was mad that it did 98% of what I wanted and the 2% was sometimes a pain in the ass, right? So we, <laughs> I think that's true of every library though. Like yeah, there's, there's yeah. no framework out there that does 100% of what you need to do. I agree, but I think it's because it did so much that it bothered me so much that it didn't do that. <laughs> because because right. it was 98% to not 80%, right? right. right? It like, wasn't 99% perfect. <laughs> um, and then the fourth part, or sorry, the fourth part of three, the third part was called Dojo X, right? And Dojo X was sort of like the kitchen sink of things, right? It was this one big repository that probably should have been 20 different repositories, but inside it, it had amazing stuff, right? Like it had its own graphics library. The, it had an amazing charting library, which used the graphics library. It had extensions to the JavaScript language and Dojo itself. It had extensions to Digit. It had something called Dojo X mobile, which was like the equivalent of jQuery mobile, but it was all baked in Dojo. And the cool thing about this was that all of these 
um, things outside of Dojo use the same coding pattern, right? So if you needed a charting library, you didn't need to learn how to use high charts. You knew how Dojo works, so you would use this framework. Uh, it was really just amazing, right? The funny aspect is that when I had left SitePen, which was roughly six, actually almost exactly six years ago, um, they were working on Dojo 1.8. And, you know, 2.0 was right around the corner. Oh, it's, a, it's right around the corner. Six years later, we finally have Dojo 2. And what's amazing is that in that time, you know, in the last six years, what have we seen? We've seen Webpack take over. We've seen React and Vue take over. We've seen so many things happen in the JavaScript community that I was sort of scared to look at what Dojo 2 was because I haven't been following it lately. And I would have been massively disappointed if it was still so far behind these things that had overtaken it in the meantime. But I'm looking down the, the, the feature list, right? It has a reactive virtual DOM-based system, which is all the rage right now. It supports not JSX, but TSX, which is type, TypeScript's version. Oh, so is, is Dojo a TypeScript thing as well? Yes, yes. It uses TypeScript as well, and that's something that they've transitioned to over the past couple of years. Um, they have streamlined support for web components and importing and exporting of custom elements, which is really cool. They're using the native web. Um, Digit before was a series of divs and buttons and stuff um, that that you would create classes which sort of wrap them. But now you can just use straight up web components, which is really nice. It has a state container like Redux and Flux, which everybody loves um, with React. It has a CLI tool. It has its own test harness. Like, I was really, really pleased to see how much Dojo 2 encompassed. And I was looking at the code samples and they all made sense. I'm just really excited for Dylan. I'm really excited for the Dojo developers. I'm excited for the community around it. And my one wish is that they really, really, really market this because if it's anywhere near as cool and as useful and as enterprise ready as Dojo was back then, I think it's really, really worth people's time. And I really think that it could grab some market share away from some of the popular uh, frameworks right now. Hmm. It's really cool. So I, who's I behind actually, Dojo? Sorry, say that again? Who, who's behind Dojo? Is it is it SitePen? Is it IBM? Is it... I see a, a link to the JS Foundation. Like, who 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 does this? Is it just some, so some a, people? It's an open source framework. It's always been an open source framework. Um, Dylan will tell you that <laughs> that Dojo came from him. Um, I'm paraphrasing. He's going to correct me after this on Twitter, and he's going to be so mad. But he needed something to simulate fizz, but fizz bubbles in beer. And so he started creating like JavaScript to make these calculations and maybe even animation. I don't know. But that was like the core of where Dojo came from. And it just started building and building. Everything starts with a beer story. <laughs> Everything ends with a whiskey story. But, um, so it's, it's always been open source. Um, SitePen's been really <clears throat> cool in that 
they have always done a lot of enterprise work for um, enterprise companies, obviously. And a lot of times they're able to use some of that code with the vendor's permission to pull it into Dojo itself. Um, and of course, when you're doing big enterprise stuff, that means you're doing some edge stuff. You need things to be fast. You need things to be internationalized. Um, and I want to say that IBM was a huge part of the accessibility internationalization and the digit UI framework as a whole. Um, so I guess I would say it's a, an open source framework that got a lot of support from IBM and other vendors who were using it for themselves. Well, that's, really, that's really cool. One of the coolest parts of original Dojo, there's a fourth part. Um, it was the test harness and it was called Doe. And if any of your tests didn't pass at the end, you would hear Homer yell, Doe. You'd have to <laughs> figure things out. And they even had something called the, the Doe, what was it called? The Doe robot. And it was a JavaScript applet that would sort of hijack your computer and click on the different buttons and stuff for you so that the click events and such weren't completely synthetic. So like the, it was just so far beyond what everyone else was doing at the time. They just didn't promote it enough. So no one knew about it. And thus it didn't win the popularity contest that jQuery and others did. Um, despite, in my opinion, Dojo being way more complete. Hmm. So how are they going to solve that now? I mean, because Google throws their weight behind Angular and Facebook throws their weight behind React. Who's going to throw their weight behind Dojo? Well, SitePen will, obviously, and it will be a community effort. But I think we should have Dylan on and ask him that question because I think that's a really good question. And I don't have an answer for it. Yeah, one let's thing, set that up. One thing that they did while I was at SitePen was that we started creating detailed tutorials using all of the different functionalities and components. And I think that was a... Tutorials are a way better way of teaching things than documentation. I'm sure we'd all agree about that, right? The documentation for Dojo was already, was always pretty good, but no one falls into documentation and says, oh, I'm going to use this. But when you write tutorials about stuff, which I've learned over the past 10 years... People really get excited about it. They have an idea of how to view, how to use it. They have a way to test it. And that's a big way of, of catching people's eyes. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. So everyone go out and take a look at Dojo 2. It's excellent. Well, I can't say that it's excellent. I hope it's excellent. It looks really good. We'll see, we'll see in a couple of years how excellent it is based on the sites that come out the other end, right? Absolutely. But that was always the thing that that irritated me um, when a new framework would come out. I mean, we've slowed down a little bit on that now, but you know, when Angular was first released, um, I was using Backbone JS at the time, and Ang- everybody was saying, "Oh, Angular's like Angular's the shit. Angular's awesome. Angular's going to like solve all of the problems." But no, produ- like major production sites had been built in with it yet, because like it was just hitting maturity. And so, like, you really don't know how good something's going to be until like it hits a certain level of mainstream right. and, and you can see like how have projects succeeded with it and how have projects failed with it. Right. I mean, I could speak for the original dojo, but a lot of the work was done under NDA and I don't, I can't give business names out, but it, it was, 
it was used a lot then. And I'm hoping that that continues with Dojo 2. Well, awesome. All right, let's move on to our next story of the day. I'm really excited about this. I'm glad yeah. that you chose this one. So um, uh, Jake Archibald from, I think he's at Google, right? Yes, he is. Yeah, uh, has this amazing website that's been around for a while now called Is Service Worker Ready? And in the last week, it finally changed from no to yes, uh, primarily because Microsoft, the Microsoft Edge team has finally shipped support for the last uh, bits and pieces to make service workers ready for, um, for Microsoft Edge browser. And so what this enables, so what service workers are, if you're not like already familiar with this concept, is it adds like this true idea of uh, a separate thread, like a background thread to your web application. And the background thread can intercept all of these network requests. It can handle caching for you to make going offline with your application super easy. Um, and it can like handle some of the bigger you know, processing tasks that you wanna throw to it. Uh, and so it really enables a lot of web applications to act more like native applications, to truly be offline first, to handle you know, real amounts of workload without stopping uh, interactivity with the user. Um, and the fact that uh, we're now at all modern browsers are, are have claimed support for this, um, we're at a point where people could start building real apps, right? Because you know when it's just Chrome, you, it's it's a little irresponsible for you to ship an app that depends on Service Worker. When it's even when it's just Chrome and Firefox, when when did responsibility factor into anything on the it, web? <laughs> as soon as you called yourself an engineer. <laughs> Right? That, that, I mean, ideally, let me, let me quickly get off, off topic here. That's to me, that's the difference between a programmer and an engineer. If you're a programmer, it's your job to type stuff. And right. like you, you type what your ticket is told to be and you're done. If you're an engineer and you build something that like hurts people or steals from people or excludes people, you are responsible. I agree. Like if you design a bridge because you're a civil engineer and that bridge falls down, your ass is going to jail, right? Like the engineers actually get held responsible. Um, And and so to me like that, all right, aside done. (laughs) (laughs) Developer versus engineer. All right, back to the, back to the topic. (laughs) The topic is service workers. So uh, until we hit support where Safari and Microsoft edge threw in, which were the laggards here, um, until we hit that support, it probably wasn't responsible to ship an app that depended on service workers. But now that we've hit this broad level of support and now all the corporate users are in and all the Apple users are in and on top of like the developer and the, and the generic users, um, you can really start doing some amazing things with service workers. And I, I think we're going to start seeing some, some really innovative web apps starting to take advantage of this capability. Yeah, progressive web apps. I mean, you can use uh, service workers for push notifications. You can use them for syncing background data. I've seen them used for a site to send down a zip file to be stored in cache. And then the service worker can access that zip file, extract its contents, and use it within your site. Right? So this is huge. And it's not just, for example, going offline, but we've all had times where our phone connectivity sucks, but we still want things to keep working. And this is another case where a service worker comes in and is helpful. You can, 
And one of the coolest things you can do with it is that you can reroute and intercept requests, right? Like if you can do that, you can send back any amount of data that you want, regardless of what the request is. And I think that's really cool. Um, when I was working with the Wadi team, which was sort of developer relations at Mozilla, we created what was called the service worker cookbook. And you can Google that. There's a whole bunch of examples of how you can use um, service workers from basic to easy. One of the things that I really liked about it is that you could, within the service worker, you could check on the cache date of files and invalidate things yourself. Um, In which case, like, for example, um, you might want to invalidate things at certain times, but if you're offline, you can still use that thing that you would have invalidated earlier, right? So to see all browsers using this, it's really exciting. And I think that it could, that service workers could get to the point, and again, that, you know, in theory, we should all know how to use service workers. But I think that we're to the point where service worker coding could even become a job specialization right? Like it's going to be that important to making apps fast, to making apps good when you're offline or connectivity issues. There's just so much that you can do with them that for me, this is some really, really awesome news. And one of the cool things about how service workers have developed is that, again, two years ago when I was working on this team, we were working with our own internal people up the line who are implementing this and they were asking us, so is this working? How should we do this? What you know? What would you change? We would talk to them and they would meet with the people from Google and everybody else on the, the people working on service worker uh, specifications. And they would change things, right? So it was really exciting to see all of this take place and to see it now working in all browsers is just so, so cool. It's really, really exciting. And uh, performance is going to get better. Overall use is going to get better. This is just a really big deal. But to tie back into responsibility for a second, um, some of the related things of of progressive web apps, like notifications you mentioned, I'm already seeing those get abused on the web. Oh, absolutely. I've landed on some sites uh, where the service worker is off and like just chewing up like a ton of data. Like, and I don't, I don't care. I'm never going to visit this website again. Like, don't install your service worker. (laughs) Um, I've landed on a hotel chain and I land on their website. And the first thing they do is want to send me push notifications. Right. And I'm like, damn, dog, I just just want a hotel room for one night. I never want a notification from you. Right. Like, it comes back to, like, understanding the appropriate use of these tools. Like, you shouldn't just throw all of these things at every web app. I would agree with that. Absolutely. Um, but let's let's keep it positive. No one's going to abuse this. This is going to be great. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, sorry, I let my curmudgeon out there for a <laughs> um, No, it, it will be abused, right? If Everything on the web is going to be abused in some way, right? Like there was that Starbucks who, um, when people are trying to sign on to their internet down in Buenos Aires was mining Bitcoin for 10 seconds sort of thing, right? Like if it's possible to do something in the browser, it's going to be abused. But I really want our listeners to know that service workers, they're not as big of a deal as they should be now, but they will be someday. And if you want to get ahead of the curve, 
start start looking at service workers and playing around because they're really exciting. And I think that people will see the power of what they can do. Service worker cookbook, people go check it out. It's really awesome. <laughs> all right. That sounds great. I'm um, just here to, I'm just here to pitch everything. All the stuff I like, I'm going to pitch. Speaking of stuff you like, tell us about our next story. Oh, this was good. This was solid banter. Mark Rabansky, who was a friend of the show, he was our first guest in the second slash first episode. He tweeted something that reminded me the of the, the video or the gif of that reporter talking to a little kid and the little kid starts out laughing and suddenly he just takes a turn and starts bawling into the microphone. Um, Mark's tweet was, 2018, help, React devs don't know JavaScript. 2013, help, new Angular devs don't know JavaScript. 2008, Help, new jQuery developers don't know JavaScript. Um, and he mentioned that, hey, I think I see a pattern over the past 10 years. Uh, I guess I'm old enough to recognize patterns. Right. It was, it was very curmudgeonly. Which it, it, you... was, it was. It was very curmudgeonly. <laughs> I both laughed and cried at, at that tweet um, because it's very true. And we touched on it a few episodes ago when we got a question from a viewer about what should people know, right? Now, on one side of me, if I'm working with another senior developer or maybe even another developer, right, and we're working on different types of projects, but they have a specialty in a certain framework, like the one framework, and they start asking really basic JavaScript questions, I feel like I kind of a little bit start to get annoyed after a while. But then I... I sort of thought about my career arc. And when I went to school, there was a JavaScript course that I took, but it was really weak, right? It was like, here's how you write a loop. Here's how you get elements. You know, it was was really basic stuff. And so I left college a really crap JavaScript engineer, right? And I might still be. That could still be the case. But I was much worse back then. Um, And then when I started... When I, st- when I really took off was when I started using Mootools, right? Now, I was lucky in that Mootools sort of um, promoted the core JavaScript language itself, right? It didn't try to mask everything. It used prototypes. Um, it had the beginning of classes. But when I started using Mootools, I was bad. I was really bad. I was using sort of like PHP paradigms in a way. I just didn't know what I was doing. But it was through Mootools and using Mootools that I learned so much about core JavaScript, right? That's what drove me to want to learn core JavaScript. And that was great because when I went to SitePen and started working on Dojo, or I started using jQuery, I could figure things out. Because like, oh, jQuery object is a wrapped array. Oh, so this is how I can get things, and this is how I can do stuff, right? So what I eventually came around to recognizing in that is that what brings people to love core JavaScript a lot of times is through these frameworks. And you shouldn't shit on people for not getting to that point yet that I got to because I had used them. Does that make sense? Like, that's the entryway to how I saw this, right? And one thing that's served me really well in life 
not just development, but in life is giving people the benefit of the doubt that they're trying their best and that they're going to get there eventually. So that's, that's sort of my takeaway from this tweet. How, how do you read that? What do you, what did you walk away thinking? <clears throat> the, the word that jumped out on me was new. It was new react devs, new angular devs, new jQuery devs. And of course they don't, right? Like all of those um, tools in some way created their own meta language, right? right? Its own things that it did that was different and unique. Like jQuery had its own set of, you know, uh, common things that leveraged underlying JavaScript, but like were kind of unique to it. And, and Angular does that in spades. Angular invents its own paradigms all over the place. Um, and so I, it's like, new devs coming in, of course they don't know anything else. That's the first thing they're learning. They're trying to solve a problem. And the tool that they have at their disposal right now is Angular, is React, is jQuery. And so that's totally cool. Like they're trying to solve a problem. They have a hammer. Because they don't understand how you made the hammer, who who cares, right? right? It only It only becomes a problem when they need to know how to build a hammer. Right. Right. And and so they'll eventually figure it out. Right. There'll be enough challenges of building a modern web app that that uh, their tool doesn't solve. Right. Because it'll like the library is only going to cover 80 percent of what you need to do or 90 percent or 99 percent. They'll have to write their own to solve the rest of the problem right. and, they'll, and they'll learn it. But until they've done it once or twice, you can't really fault them for it. Right. Like nobody, no, no software uh developer that I've ever met knows, knows all platforms, all languages. It's just, you, you can't keep up with how fast everything is changing. You can't keep it in your head. You can't like seamlessly move between environments that fast. You focus on the subset that you, that is enough tools in your toolbox for you to accomplish the set of problems that you have. And don't feel bad about not having every tool. Like nobody does. The full stack engineer is a myth. It, right. it, it doesn't exist. It can exist for a stack, not for all stacks. Right. And I would add to that that, first of all, it could it could work the other way, right? Like you could have a JavaScript legend that understands every part of basic JavaScript, but if they don't know React or JSX or TypeScript, whatever you're using, the finger could be pointed back at them, right? Saying, you don't know this. Uh, You're not as useful to the project. I think the biggest advice or takeaway I would have here is don't be an elitist about stuff that you're good at because you're going to walk into something else and someone could treat you the same way. And you end up realizing then how big of a fool you were for acting that way to other people. Of course, that never stops anyone else on the internet, right? <laughs> but um, <laughs> I th- it really struck me that you know, at first I thought this tweet was really funny and then it was just sort of sad because it's like, it, that's totally true. And people are like that and we shouldn't be like that. That was developer elitism 2008 through 2018 in Camp <laughs> right there. Great timeline right there. <laughs> <laughs> I never learned Angular. I tried it. I wasn't a huge fan of it. Oh, um, so I, they would they would have been complaining about me quite a bit. I uh, I learned Angular on several a couple of different projects, 
I, I, I was not a fan. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. That's Let's good. Leave it at that. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to our next story. Uh, this one is not strictly um, a software development topic. However, it's close enough to all of us that it's going to probably affect most of our jobs over the coming year. Um, and that's the European Union's General Data Protection Regulation, or the GDPR, uh, as it's commonly circulating on Twitter. I imagine many of you have received emails from the various services that you subscribe to over the past couple of months saying, here's our updated privacy policy. Here's our updated terms and conditions. Um, and this is largely being driven by this new law, uh, which goes into effect here later this month. Uh, essentially, what this does, what this is saying is that um, all of those, uh, it's putting a lot of teeth behind all of the things that the European Union has been saying about data privacy for a long time, is that if you capture information that is personal data about somebody or sensitive data, then you have to get their explicit consent to do it. And then if you take that data and you give it to third parties or you do stuff with it, you have to have similar agreements in place with all of those third parties so that nobody's doing anything super scummy with it. Or if they are doing super scummy, like you have to tell the user that, hey, I'm about to do this super scummy thing. You better be okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> And this is what's getting like Facebook into a lot of trouble right now because Facebook is all about personal data, right? Like its whole business model is I get your personal data and I'm going to do things with it. Uh, and so they're, you know, <laughs> having a lot of problems right now trying to figure out how do they comply with the GDPR and still make some sort of viable business model. But where this comes in for all of us as regular developers is that we all as kind of common practices that we all do today or that are, are super common for software development, like like identifying the user and sticking a cookie on the browser so that you could personalize the site or using Google Analytics or, or a, a lot of these things are becoming much more delicate into how you can use them without becoming a violator of these new regulations. For example, if you were to like take somebody's email address and stick it in a cookie on their browser and then use that email address every time they visited the site, you have to tell them that you're doing that explicitly, like a nasty old like prompt and get their explicit consent before you can move on. Google Analytics is saying, hey, if you serve the European Union, you can't send us email, like you can't send us personally identifiable information anymore. Like we, they don't want it. They want you to like obfuscate it to their own IDs or your own IDs, which is probably a good idea, right? <laughs> we probably don't need to be sending everybody's personal data all over the internet. But as developers, as engineers who are responsible, right? Um, we need to kind of be aware of this, right? And the, the data that we're going to gather about the users of our, of our applications, we need to make sure we know what we're doing with it. Are we storing it in ethical ways? Are we, you know, sell, are we like just making it available for Facebook or ad networks to just rip off the page? Are we telling the user? If, I mean, if we are doing that, if we are saving it and sending it to our advertising networks, are we telling the user? Are we telling them in, in a way that they understand? Um, I think we haven't quite understand, we, we don't quite understand how this is going to go into effect, right? Because right. the law is out there and it says, here's what's going to happen. 
And there's like all kinds of penalties associated with, you know, non-compliance. But we don't really know what they're going to pursue. We don't right. really know what they're going to say. All right, you know what? This is a clear violation of the line and we're going to bring the hammer down and like, you know, take somebody to court for millions and millions of dollars. Um, until that kind of happens, we don't really know where this, where the teeth are going to be behind this. Well, I mean, it's still early days for the internet, right? And what you've just said applies to a lot of things, um, like regulation of cryptocurrency. And, you know, these the, these privacy concerns are just coming up, but we saw with, um, with the U.S. election and Brexit, like it, everything out there is ripe to be abused right now, right? But per, per this specific case, I remember visiting a um, like the BBC website maybe five years or so ago and it had a pop-in that says you know this site uses cookies and if you're going to use it you have to accept it and it's like it's the internet no shit it uses cookies everybody's using cookies right why are you showing me this notice and I went to the Arsenal website and they were showing me a notice and I was like why is everyone why, why are all the Brits telling me about this so like we just sort of assume that this is how it was. It's really cool to see this stuff coming in. Um, from a UI perspective, it kind of sucks, right? Because showing warnings all the time, even if it's a, a standard warning, it's a warning. And it's uh, an initial, has been an initial negative connotation of like, uh-oh, there's something might not be good here. But in theory, should be a good thing because the business is telling you that they're going to comply by standard practices. I think there's some uncertainty in all of this right now too. It's like right now there's a lot of companies that threw those nasty cookie banners over the bottom of their site that say, right. Hey, accept this thing. And it sucks, right? It's like to a web developer, you're like, of course, like you said, no shit. You have cookies. <laughs> it's, the, it's the internet. Right. Like, this is how this, this is how it works. But I think it's more subtle than that. Right. Because it's not just about, the technology of using cookies. It's about what you were using it for. It was about taking personally identifiable data and tracking it between websites. And like, if you don't need to do that, it's, do you really need to show that warning? I'm like, all right, I think I'm feeling like I'm hitting this point where I need to say that I'm not an attorney and you should consult your attorney. But the the line on whether or not you need to do this is more about more than just whether or not you use cookies, but what you use them for. Right. Yeah. And I think sites like the BBC and Arsenal probably shouldn't have been gathering that kind of information from, you know, a random web user to begin with. I think, no, I think that if you use cookies at all, you needed, you needed that. So whether it was, Hey, the last time you visited, I mean, that's not necessarily personal identification, right? But if you use cookies at all in the UK, you needed to show this warning. But I, sort of related side note, did you see Mark Zuckerberg in front of Congress? I did, yes. I, I think that... having a bunch of 70 year old people who have no idea what's going on, ask questions of Mark Zuckerberg wasn't productive. And I don't see the U S improving much at all, if any, 
And for those who haven't seen it, classic example is Senator Orrin Hatch, who might be the oldest senator we have, asking Mark Zuckerberg, if you don't charge for your website, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember the exact quote, if you don't charge any money for your website, how do you make money? How is this a sustainable business model? And you can see in Mark Zuckerberg's face, he couldn't believe he got such a stupid question. And he like so he nervously smirked and said, well, sir, we run ads. Now I'm, <laughs> and everybody had fun, you know, had a giggle about it. And, and the Senator said, oh, wow, that's great. Like what a stupid question. What a stupid, like the whole thing's stupid, right? Privacy is something that we very much need because as we've seen, it's enough to change people's minds and get people in trouble. And what I'm asking this because we're Americans, right? Like, do you see this sort of thing coming to the U S anytime soon? Um, do you have the faith that this will happen in the U S anytime soon? I don't, I don't know. We're quickly kind of strown into like a more political centric debate here. Um, I think this law has like some, um, some more big government overtones to it than the current U S political climate right. is going to be likely to adopt, uh, seeing that we've, you know, gutted regulations in a bunch of industries recently. Uh, and I'm not sure that we would introduce new ones here. However, there is, there has been some backlash against Facebook as people who honestly like Facebook isn't done anything recently that they haven't been doing for years. Like right. this is, this is how Facebook worked and developers understood that, Hey, I'm going to give my information. And like, there's, I actually know very few other developers who are active on Facebook because they all knew how it worked. Like right. they're like, yeah, I'm not going to put that much. I'll put my, I like a name and a picture and that's all I'm going to put on there. Right. Um, and so we knew how it worked. And it's like now the rest of the country is kind of figuring out a little bit how it worked. Um, and they're angry about it, but I don't think they're angry enough to do anything. Right. Um, yeah. yeah I, Grandparents got to see their grandkids, man. Yeah, the optimist in me is like, oh, yeah, we're just going to see how this you know European thing goes, and then we'll copy the good parts out of it and bring it in. But the realist in me is like, eh, we're not really going to do anything until something really bad happens. That's, that tends to be how, how we roll is we wait until something really bad happens and then we overreact. Um, well, I mean, in fairness, I feel like something really bad has already happened, but we'll, we'll keep that out of this. Um, all right. My last one, I wanted to call someone out by name. Um, and I mean that in a good way. Diana Smith, whose website is diana-adrian.com. I'll put a link in chat. Yeah. If you check out my Twitter feed, you'll see. Um, why I'm so amazed. This person has decided to replicate fine arts with handwritten HTML and CSS. And that's one of the rules, right? Is that that she has to write this code herself by hand. And I am blown away at the incredible works of art that you can mimic using just CSS. I was like, when I first saw this, I did a view source, right? 
And I'm like, this has to be, you know, like uh, some sort of advanced um, image to canvas, you know, worker sort of thing to get this to work. It's not. It is 114 kilobytes to create this. Wait, no, I'm lying. I'm looking at the wrong file. Anyways, it's handwritten CSS to create these amazing works of art. Like there's a um, there's a 18th century oil painting she did. There's a mid-century, um, for lack of a better term, pinup um, poster that she did. Um, there's a fruit poster, but it is amazing. You guys have to check this out. Her, this work is unbelievable. Sounds incredibly uh, time-consuming and patient, but it's unbelievable the way that she's using CSS gradients and CSS to replicate this art. You have to check it out. Yeah, that's that's, that's really cool stuff. I, I like the picture. Like, wow. That would have taken so much time. Yes, and all the code is actually up on GitHub as well. So everyone should check that out. Hundreds of HTML elements to make this happen, but it's amazing. There's actually, um, I was thinking of an event, I'll post that in chat too, called the IO Festival that's actually here in, in Minneapolis every year. And it's like this art and technology festival conference thing of, of people who do like these advanced, like it's kind of hard to describe because it's, it's this union place of art and technology. Um, and they're just showing off these, these sometimes software, sometimes hardware projects that people have done, not for any, you know, not for like a business thing, just, just to be artists and to create things. And so there's some, there's some really great things that, that have come out of that, that, um, I know a few people who've gone to it, go to it every year and, uh, and swear by it. That sounds amazing. Like some of the demos that I have the most fun writing blog posts about are image and art related because I am a terrible artist, but I very much appreciate it. Um, I just, I had to point this out. It was so cool. People need to go look at it now. Yeah, right absolutely. Now. Yep. There's a link in, in chat to it right now. You can go check it out. The, uh, the posters are, it, I mean, yeah, it's, it's markup and CSS. Straight up. It's badass. Okay. Uh, last story of the day. Uh, this is something that got released, I think, a week ago or two weeks ago. Uh, it is the 2018 update to the front-end developer handbook put together by uh, Cody Lindley and front-end masters. Um, this is... Uh, a fantastic resource if you're just getting started or even, you know, if you're not just getting started, you just want like a, basically an index of tutorials and lessons on how to learn stuff on the internet. It's got all kinds of different things in it. Um, a lot of pointers to uh, great examples, great tutorials on, on Mozilla, on all kinds of other sites. Um, they've even got pointers for you to like, Hey, if you're looking for a JavaScript error monitoring tool, Hey, you should go look at track.js. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, amongst other things, <laughs> um, but anyway, it's a it's a fantastic resource uh, if you're looking to jump into something new, uh, a little bit more structured than just your random googling and Stack Overflow searches. Um, and hopefully, it can uh, help you jump in and and learn what kind of questions to ask. Um, that's really all we have for the day. 
Um, so what was, what's your big takeaway today, David? Dojo 2 looks amazing. Go try it. Be good to your fellow developers because they're going to be better than you someday. And holy shit, the art you can put together with just HTML and CSS. Amazing, man. Uh, I enjoyed kind of a, uh, a back-channel theme that seemed to run through a number of the stories we talked about today on uh, software engineering and responsibility. I did not expect that we would talk about that, but I think that is an important conversation, an important topic for us to, to all kind of understand that we, uh, we need to take responsibility for the stuff that we're building, make sure that we're doing things ethically, um, both you know, to our users and between the other members of our teams. Um, and that that should be the core tenant of, of being an engineer. All right, that's all I got. David, anything for you? Yes, Mozilla DevTools. Yes. I've been working a lot on the new debugger. Check it out. Breakpoint's looking good. Um, one thing that people are going to love is the framework integration. So if you're using React in your app, we have special features in the debugger that lets you um, set breakpoints at certain times when something happens within that framework and a lot more integration stuff. So do me a favor, grab Firefox Nightly, check out the debugger, let me know how I can improve it because I want to do that for you. Last thing I had. Awesome. We are going to be off next week because of my fault. Uh, next week is NDC Minnesota happening right here in my backyard. Nice. If you're in town or looking to come and visit uh, Minnesota in May, which is gorgeous up here right now, uh, you can still grab some tickets at ndcminnesota.com. And on Thursday, it's going to be PubConf Minnesota, which is going to be amazing. Uh, we've rented out a bar. We have uh, 11 speakers, two different musical acts, uh, lots of beer, lots of free food. Um, it's going to be a great time. If you're going to be in the area, grab a ticket for for that at pubconf.io. That's where I'm going to be next Thursday when I'm not doing this. Uh, but we'll be back in two weeks with a new topic. Surly? Is Surly on the menu? Uh, Sur Surly will definitely be on tap at New Bohemia. Yeah. Yes. I like that. So you should come over here sometime and we'll go to Surly. That requires me leaving the house. You know I it don't do that. It does require you leaving the house. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's it for, for, for our show today. Thanks so much for joining us, everybody. We'll be back in two weeks. I'm Todd Gardner, my co-host. David Walsh at David Walsh Blog on Twitter. I'm at Todd H. Gardner on Twitter. Thanks so much for joining us. See you next time. Adios. The Script and Style Show is recorded and produced by David Walsh and Todd Gardner. We'll see you next time on Script and Style.